My name is Pedro Mujabafid, and we at TMC aim to discuss and inform students regarding topics which aren't covered well in medical school. This interview series is aimed at answering the questions that medical students, interns, and doctors-to-be have regarding the various career pathways for medical graduates. Now, the views and opinions expressed here are purely personal and are not reflective or representative of the stance of any employer, college, medical service, endorsement, or other person. All right, let's start the show. Hi everyone, today we're discussing rheumatology and academics with Professor Michelle Leach, who is a known celebrity superstar to all Monash students, if not everyone else. Hi Michelle, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you, I feel honoured. <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit about your journey from a uh, medical student to where you are now? Uh, well, um, I think I've often said um, in various interviews and you know, to AMSA and to MUMIS reps, uh, that as a medical student, uh, I was a very you know shy, retiring medical student who wanted often to uh, escape um, being visible, and so I, I used to try to uh, hide in tutorials and things like that. And um, I never really thought that I would be in any kind of leadership position. I, I never particularly aspired to that. I was just trying to survive medical school, and I think like a lot of medical students now, um, I felt. I felt like I didn't know enough, that I was never going to know enough, uh, that uh, everybody knew more than I did, and I certainly felt like a fraud uh, most of the time. And so I was just trying to survive medical school, really, and I never really thought much past what would I do after that. Um, But when I did finish and graduate, um, which was last century, which I'm familiar, often <laughs> fond of saying, it was a long time ago. But when I did graduate, I uh, didn't have any idea what I wanted to do at all. I was just so pleased, you know, to have that doctor in front of my name. I couldn't believe that I was earning a salary. Uh, I was just so pleased to be an intern. Um, that's all I wanted to be was be an intern. And then, then it was about surviving internship, and. I saw so many great doctors and role models and people that I wanted to be like and often I think my sense of what I might have wanted to do related to perhaps the registrar that I was working with at the time and so some of the people that I worked with that were really inspiring uh, you know at one point I wanted to do oncology and I think that was because I had this brilliant registrar in oncology who was just so kind so competent so capable And I was so impressed by him and I thought, I want to be like him. And it really wasn't about the oncology, you know. And then, I mean, of course, I enjoyed oncology. um, But then, you know, there was a formative experience uh, when I was a medical student where I, uh, I, well, actually I was a young doctor, I beg your pardon, and I was covering oncology. And somebody, a young patient um, died uh, with ovarian cancer and she had a, a ver- very small uh, daughter um, coming to visit her and I just remember in her dying moments that this very tiny child was there looking at her mother and she was too scared you know to go to her mother because her mother looked jaundiced and was having labored breathing and and I just I thought oh this this is just I don't this is hard this job is I'm gonna there's be a lot of this you know and not that I particularly shy away from it, but I just thought, oh, you know, can I do this for the rest of my days? You know, and, and, and so part of me, I think, thought, 
I'm not sure if I've got the fortitude actually to, to do that kind of job. Um, but then there were so many other people that I worked with that I, I, I was impressed with anything really. I you know, did cardiology, I thought the cardiology registrar was amazing. And then I ended up doing rheumatology and I thought that the rheumatology team were fantastic. I really, I thought they were very approachable. They seem to love education. They seem to like teaching. Um, and I've expressed this once before, but one of the consultants was a woman. Um, and at that time, there were lots of female uh, doctors and junior doctors and registrars, but there were very few female senior consultants in the hospital, like very few. And this particular consultant, um, Dr. Marion Miller, was, um, I noticed there was this one moment in the ward round where all the team turned to her and said, what do you think, Marion? And everybody was waiting for her to speak. And I thought, oh, women can be consultants, okay. And so I thought, well, I could do that. Uh, so I just, almost by accident in a way, um, just by happenstance, ended up doing that. Luckily, I also really love rheumatology patients, which turns out to be the key thing. And I like chronic management because mm -hmm. you get to know people and their families. So I think in some ways I got, I got a really good um, opportunity there and I'm very glad that I was able to choose a career that's turned out to be really great for me. So besides that aha moment where you saw Marianne and the um, I guess the pull that she had with everyone was there mm. anything else that pulled you towards rheumatology? Uh, well one of the things that I love about rheumatology is that you have to uh, take a good history um, you know, we've got a lot of fancy tests and we've got a lot of fancy molecules and the underlying science is really interesting with all the immunological diseases. But I think what I love is the diagnostic dilemmas. And even now I'm on ward service and I still, it's not formulaic. You know, it's not, you can't go in there and use algorithms and say, right, it's obvious what we have to do. I, you actually find that the years of experience and all the different patients you meet have actually contributed to your ability to to actually become a diagnostician and so I love it that I still go on ward rounds after 30 years of practice and I'm there are beautiful mysteries that have to be solved and it's not yeah I know that um, so it's I'm still learning you know and Corey Imparo <laughs> and rheumatology immunology and all of its diagnostic mystery is still providing that kind of um, um, a challenge, you know, diagnostic challenge every day. So I guess it's not boring. Um, it's every day is interesting. And, mm -hmm. and I don't, you know, I haven't become tired or jaded or, oh yeah, I've seen a thousand of those. So it, yeah, I still love what I do. Can you tell us about what your typical day as a rheumatologist would involve? Maybe when you're on ward service, including everything that goes along with it? Um, yeah, okay. So um, usually in, a, in an average week you might have, if you're working in a public hospital, you might have a couple of clinics that you go to. So, you know, have a complex rheumatology clinic where people who've been very sick get discharged and you, um, you know, review them. And then I've got one clinic which is a dedicated rheumatoid arthritis clinic, which we look after people with rheumatoid arthritis and try and optimise their management. And then on the ward service days, um, in general, uh, you know, I'll meet my team, which is two, we've got two beautiful registrars who are Monash graduates, um, and they are excellent, of course, because they're Monash graduates. <laughs> and I have to say that I do work with a lot of Monash graduates, and they are 
they are very good to work with. Um, they have particular qualities which I think do stand out. Mm -hmm. I'm not just saying that because you're interviewing me. I actually believe it. And I'm involved because I'm at the College of Physicians with graduates from all 19, 20 now universities in Australia. Yeah. And uh, so I think I, I'm in a position to say that I think the Monash graduates do have something um, special. And so I'm working with these these two beautiful registrars and residents who are often Monash graduates as well. And so I'll meet the team and they'll tell me how many patients we need to see and how many referrals we might have. In rheumatology, there's often a lot of complex referrals from infectious diseases or haematology, which is the other great thing about my discipline is there's a lot of interaction with other specialties. So we, we work really closely with infectious diseases, doctors, haematologists, um, we work very closely with respiratory physicians, with orthopaedic surgeons. So we have a lot of cross referrals between us and we have a lot of diagnostic mysteries that often fall between particularly haematology, infectious diseases and rheumatology. So we have a lot of really great discussions with our infectious diseases colleagues and things like that. So we, we go on these ward rounds and you know we'll, we'll see patients and we'll discuss whether there's a diagnostic issue or a management issue or a communication uh, thing where we need to communicate to the patient some aspect of care. And often there'll be students on the ward round, uh, fifth year students or occasionally third year students. And so we might point out something of interest or do a bit of teaching and yeah so that's sort of an, an average ward round I guess and we in our wards we have at Monash Health where I am working we have a lot of complex patients now with you know we've, we've got a lot of drugs we use now like monoclonal antibodies mm -hmm. and yep. new immunosuppressive drugs which means we actually have a lot of infections and, and complex immunological issues and We've also got a lot of patients, the people who get really sick come in, so people with bad lupus that's affecting the kidneys or the brain, or people who are on our medications who maybe got some kind of infection, that kind of thing. Um, you have to be quite sick to get into hospital nowadays, as you know. Yeah. If there's any doctors you'd like us to interview, or if there's any questions you'd like asked, please shoot us a message. We listen and respond to every single message that comes through. Given that the rheumatology bed card isn't as large as, for example, the orthopaedics or cardio bed card, mm. and you have a lot of referrals, how does that impact how you practice medicine? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, I, th I think you do get more time to um, sort of go more deeply um, and spend more time with each patient who's in hospital. I think, you know, if you've got a ward full of 40 people like each with the same problem like let's say cardiology they've mostly all had a heart attack a lot of them have come in with a myocardial ischemia and so you kind of come you basically you know moving through and doing much the same thing whereas my ward round I mean just to give, literally to give you an example of this very week is that you know we've had three patients with lupus on the ward one of whom is psychotic um, and it's been interesting to try and work out whether she has steroid induced psychosis a pre-existing schizoaffective illness or it is lupus in the brain mm -hmm. um, we've got two others who've got active lupus that need management we've got a person with a difficult differential around a, an acute monoarthritis that could be septic arthritis but might be gout but we've also you know had a gentleman um, who is on one of the new pd1 inhibitors which is um, you know their medicines that kind of are 
upregulate your own immune system mm-hmm. to fight cancers. And this gentleman appears to have developed a meningoencephalitis. And so we've been, you know, with working with the neurologists around that. Um, I mean, it is actually, you know, these poor patients are very sick. Um, but each patient requires some in-depth uh, discussion and you get more time to talk to the families and have family meetings. So I think if I was on a ward with 30 patients, you'd probably have to go bang, bang, bang. Yeah. But I can, on a ward round, we can actually quite deeply discuss our patients but most of our work is as you say ambulatory so you know we have um, 12 clinics a week and we see patients mainly from the community mm-hmm. and I guess besides saving lives and um, providing medical care what do you find to be the most rewarding part of rheumatology I guess from more of a selfish standpoint like what keeps you going um I think it's the challenge. Um, It's the way in which the science and underlying immunology is so closely bound up in the clinical practice. They're not separate, they're together. I think also because I've done a PhD in the lab and done basic science research, I feel like the constant awareness of the, the basic science is always there, just under the surface. And I think having a, a role which crosses research, teaching and um, clinical practice it it kind of livens up everything you do like mm-hmm. you can't actually get stuck in a rut do you know because you might be on a ward round and a student will ask you to explain something and you you think oh okay that that's good we'll, we'll try and explain that and actually that's why I love education is because having students on ward rounds and in clinics and and being an educator it definitely improves the way you care for patients yeah you know, because you think about how to explain things to students, but you also think about how to explain things to patients and patients' families. And I think I think students have been absolutely instrumental in like progressing clinical um, care and also in progressing research and science because they often ask the questions that trigger a thought, and you think actually nobody knows that. Yeah. So as a researcher, having students around, it it does bring up these new questions. Um, So I think rheumatology as well, I mean, it seems to be no accident. There's a lot of medical program heads who are rheumatologists in Australia. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Yeah, there's, you know, Melbourne Uni, um, you know, Professor Jeff McColl. There's um, University of Sydney, um, Professor Jane Bleasel. And there's now University of Macquarie will have a medical school uh, with Professor Patrick McNeil. And there might be a couple of others. Peter Brooks was one of the first, I think, Professor Peter Brooks, who was a dean of many medical schools. He was a roving dean and rheumatologist. So there's this really strong, it's very interesting, why so many rheumatologists? And actually quite a lot are involved even at the next level, like clinical deans or directors. Um, So I think there's something, is something about rheumatology that does really lend itself to this crossing through the zones. There must be. I don't know. It's really unusual. I don't know. I haven't looked at other countries, but... Mm. It'd be interesting to see. Mm. Uh, conversely, what aspect of rheumatology um, do you struggle with the most? That's a really good question too. Um, I do love all aspects of it. I think some days, you know, if I'm... This is something I've sort of had to work on, but there are some days where I think, oh, if someone else just walks through the door and, and talks about their pain... I just it's sometimes like it's a world of pain Mm. so you know rheumatology um, maybe for neurologists it's a world of headaches for I don't know kidney doctors uh, might it be a world of uh, 
um, edema. Edema, or you're in your frequency or something. And for, I don't know, everyone's got their thing. You know, uh, I know certain ENT surgeons say they just, if they have one more person who talks about, you know, being difficult, like can't clear their throat or blocked ears or something, they're going to scream. But for, for rheumatologists, I guess it's pain. And the thing about pain is there's always distress. And so my husband's a psychiatrist, and I always say, I would love to have one full hour, you know, with every patient who comes in with pain because they've often got so much distress related to that pain or underpinning that pain. So I think managing pain is one of the hardest areas and I think you have to watch out for compassion fatigue, you know, because just you open the door and say, right, tell me where the pain is, you know. And I think it's a bit different to checking someone's creatinine or saying, now let's look at your kidney function or your urine result. People don't have the same emotional, but with pain, like pain is always personal and pain is always... Pain, pain is distressing. So you've got to somehow in that consultation deal with the distress and the pain. So, you know, you have to be very skilled and you also have to have a lot of reserve and you have to kind of clear your boundaries because like, you can't kind of go in there being tired and on the back foot mm-hmm. and then have 10 patients with pain. You know, so that aspect, I think, in rheumatology can be very hard and I think a, a lot of rheumatologists struggle with that, that stuff. Can you make any comment as to how competitive getting into rheumatology is compared to other medical specialties? Because, I mean, everything's getting more competitive as we go forward. But maybe in comparison to others, do you see it being more competitive or about the same? I think it goes up and down. I think the fact that, I mean, in this precinct and at Monash, um, what you've got is you've got a head of medical programs who's a rheumatologist. You've got at least two of the directors of clinical training at sites, rheumatologists. Um, so you've got a kind of a lot of rheumatology leaders who are a bit visible and I know for quite a number of years a, a lot of our top students have just become rheumatologists like and I don't know if that's accidental or related to the role models that they're seeing so for the last few years we've had a lot of competition for the rheumatology training positions in in Victoria um, and quite a lot of good people I think have had to wait in a queue um, and I think I think the issue of the whole training bottleneck is a problem, a big mm-hmm. problem. And, yeah. you know, I feel very strongly about it. And I think that the, I think that the specialist training uh, committees, which are now called accreditation and training committees of the colleges, do need to be a lot more flexible about the forms that training takes. I think right now our training programs are too hospital-centric and that also limits the number of posts. It's a perfectly good place to train for rheumatology in part community, part hospital, or you know, a bit of both. We need to sort of spread it out a bit um, because I think you, we, we do need more rheumatologists. We've got an aging population and we've got um, lots of patients out there. The Monash Health waiting list is you know, three months long um, and there are 2,000 people on it you know, waiting to be seen. And rheumatologists are retiring and mm-hmm. aging, so we have to replenish that. But we're limited by the number of public hospital training posts, which is not a good training model. And of course, we know we've got the distribution problem with there's heaps of rheumatology patients in the country, yeah. but there's no training positions in the country. So the new rural training hubs, I think, will start to address some of that. And hopefully we'll see some training positions coming up in the country for surgeons, for you know rural uh, specialists and generalists. 
But I think the other issue is probably about dual training now, which is becoming much more popular, where people are general physicians and rheumatologists. But I think what we need to see is flexibility in pathways so that people can train to be generalists with a specialist, uh, you know, particular specialist interest, um, rather than become hospital-centric people. You know, mm-hmm. and hopefully we'll be able to create more training positions for you guys, which is what Fingers I think. Crossed. Well, that's what we're pushing for. You know, is that we've got more flexible training opportunities, um, more part-time training, um, more training that's friendly for families. You know, um, with more older graduates nowadays. So I think we've really got to work harder on this. Let's change tact and talk a little bit, a little, a little bit about academics now. At what point did you get interested in starting? academics I think probably even as a medical student I think I thought I'd love to be a a, like you all always say at graduation that you want to be involved in teaching and I think that is fantastic because I think you will be teaching you just happen it just happens so automatically you you know it happens you're already teaching your younger colleagues so beautifully and um, you will continue to do that because it's sort of in your blood so I think when you graduate you think oh I just I just love teaching and I think everybody who is energized about clinical practice and usually good clinicians kind of like teaching Mm -hmm. because it it basically it's symbiotic Mm -hmm. so I teach you and I learn from you and and you ask questions that make me think which improves the way I practice so it's this fantastic quid pro quo it's nothing martyrdom about it it's a it's a mutually beneficial arrangement so I when I was a medical student I thought oh I'd love to be one of those amazing teachers that you know some of them you worship like about some of them you hate like 10 percent well in my day maybe something like 20 percent or 20 percent were quite scary like maybe really scary actually like you would actually go to a tutorial and feel physically sick um you know you feel actually physically terrified your heart would race and for my in my day it was 20 to 30 percent of people that scared the hell out of you I won't say what I was going to say um but nowadays I think it's they're still there and you know I think it maybe is slightly less um maybe it's like 10 percent that are really scary but they're still out there and I think what we need to do is transform our teaching so that there's none of them um, and make sure that everybody who's out there is someone who knows how to empower learners and be someone who doesn't um, I don't know I mean we didn't we didn't discover half the stuff we teach I think you can you can be a bit arrogant if you discovered it you know and I teach what I discover but most of what I teach amazing people discovered and amazing people taught me and I'm as I describe it just the vector so I'm just there to pass it on, you know, and I think you have to pass it on in a way that empowers people and that they feel that they've learned something. But I've, I think I've always wanted to be a teacher. Okay. And teaching's the thing still that does, I get really excited if I've got some teaching happening in a day. I think, thank goodness I can get away from these other meetings and do some <laughs> teaching. Oh, I feel great, you know. Like, and being with the students, seeing the students, I think it just makes, makes my day. Uh, and a lot of people say that. So now you're, you're the head of our medical school, which is fantastic. Can you take us through the different rungs of the ladder that have progressed to you being here? So yeah. what, what posts have you had as an academic which have kind of led you to become yeah, what yeah. you are now? Well, I think just starting with in, you know, in medical school, I probably took a group, a junior group like you did, you know, yep. with your, your vertical uh, teaching, like as in a bedside, you know, I might have taken them to show them things and so yep. on. And then when I finished, you know, you get asked to be a bedside tutor 
which mm-hmm. um, or a type of you get asked will you do some tutoring and in those days no one ever got paid ever it was all just you know it was like for the it was like a um, it was a tradition yep. you know it was a tradition and um, you just got asked and you said oh fabulous you know and you never would even dream of saying give me some money for that uh, and so but that was fine because it was as I said mutually beneficial like you get as much out of it as you give so bedside tutoring first and then you know more bedside tutoring and then often you get asked to do lectures that might relate to your research area or your clinical area or tutorials and you get more and more and more of those until eventually someone says oh would you like to have some role like you know clinical supervisor is a role that you look over all the tutor groups and then you might do that for a while and then someone says do you want to be the like clinical site director or clinical dean and so then you do that Um, and in my case I think I probably did a, a a slight leap from clinical dean to the deputy dean here but it's not that different like you're running a clinical program in a hospital where you've got maybe 500 students and then you start, you understand the program you understand the course and so you don't know everything about it though especially not the campus based things but then coming over here to do this job was not such a giant leap mm-hmm. i mean i had a lot to learn and i'm not a university campus based person i'm a hospital person so I had a lot of adaptations to make about the campus, but I think in my heart I'm still a clinician, so I sort of understand the clinical years teaching a lot better than the preclinical. But yeah, it's been very enjoyable though to get involved in year one and two and in year two digilabs and you know seeing the year twos. If I had my way, I'd be in every year. I would I would be involved not because I feel I need to do it. They don't need me. It's just very good for me to see the students at each level. As you've progressed and you've kind of gotten more uh, deeper into academics, did you start aiming to be the dean or no. did it just kind of happen? Oh, absolutely not. No, yeah. no, never. Not at all. I mean, that's the funniest thing, isn't it? I mean, you talk to a lot of people who say, I've got it mapped out. You know, I've got yeah. it really mapped out. I know exactly where I'm going. Um, and I always thought, oh, I've never, and I'm not just saying that, I mean, I've never had it mapped out. Um, Do you think... Uh, going forward given the competitive nature of everything you have to start mapping it out if you do want to for example be the dean of a school is that something you want you should be I guess you know doing extra qualifications for or really trying to get involved early or yeah I think look a lot of people I've never done any special qualifications um like I've never done any masters in education or but a lot of people have and, and I think that's valuable so if you've done it I think it's very helpful like to do a grad cert in education or something but I would say that, like everything, I think if you, you know, I think if you have this like genuine passion for something, it means if the passion is genuine, like let's say I said, oh, it's my ambition to be deputy dean, right? I think, I don't know if I would have got there, mm-hmm. actually, because I think I would have been motivated by something different. It would have been, I want to be the deputy dean rather than what is it that I can bring you know to the world right and I think what's happened in a strange way is I have just basically been whatever it is I've absolutely followed my passion so whatever it is I love I've done it more and then the thing that I love and I do more is also the thing that of course I seem to be good at and so then people say you're good at that why don't you come and do this do you know so it's almost been effortless I can't explain it like I haven't had to uh so I think it's really is truly about if you really love something 
you love it like and it's pure and it's authentic it sort of shows in everything you do like people notice you and they they actually think you're just good you know and somehow you kind of rise yeah you rise naturally equally there are people who do the other which is i have a vision and i am going to just do every step on the ladder until I get there like I'm going to tick off all the qualifications until I get there so I think there's two ways to do it there's two ways but the way I've done it I suppose I could say it sort of hasn't cost me that's all I can really say like I haven't kind of I don't know I haven't felt ever at any stage like poor me you know I'm I'm, I'm, I'm under a pile of rubbish trying to be something you know what I mean like it's been I haven't whinged about it you know it's been fun and easy it's been effortless do you think you have to be cream of the crop to get to higher stakes in the in academia? Well, absolutely not. Like, <laughs> um, I mean, I wasn't like cream of the crops, but I was not uh, like I was probably you know. Look, we also too had a small cohort. It wasn't as competitive as it is for you guys, and I think also too, it was just a different world. And I feel for you all because I I see so much. The competition is really hard for you, and I think in the training environment that you're in. I think you get some very ambitious people who kind of sort of razz things up for everybody else and everybody feels they've got to do stuff. Mm. And I was talking to MRSS about this, Monash Research um, Student Society, about the fact that I get really stressed for the students on behalf of the students, you know, when they come and they say, I want to do summer research project and I want to do this and I want to do that and I want to do this. And I feel, oh, I wish you'd just have a holiday. I just really want you guys to have a rest. (laughs) I want you to have a rest. And I actually feel as if this has been created by, okay, there's training pressure. But in the end, it's the cohort that has the power to dial it up or down. It's the cohort that does Mm. that. So it's not... I mean, yes, you'll have people saying, if you've got a PhD, I'll employ you, or if you've got research, I'll employ you. But it only started because a bunch of students started to go, I'm going to get a nature paper. And then someone said, wow, you know, I can tell the difference between you and you. And then suddenly every student has got to try and do that. So I get worried about that. Um, And I think for you guys, I think it is, I, I think it's hard and... I, I think a lot of whirlpool pressure builds up inside the cohort, which is very hard to resist. When I was a medical student, easily, and I'm not just saying this, lots of people would just go to the pub, and they would. And I'm not, I'm not saying this like in the old days, but they really did, because there was only probably about 10 people who were hyper high achievers, who actually thought, I'm going to be this person, yep. right? But the rest of us were just regular people. And so... We were just a bit like, oh, oh, okay, well, can we do that? Like, we didn't even know. So I think you will be, you know, you'll be under some pressure, I think, to, it's a different world. Does being an academic shape your clinical practice and vice versa? Does being a clinician shape your academic practice? Oh, completely. So, you know, at the moment I'm working with some epidemiologists on a very giant cohort Um, of of ageing populations in the world and it's really interesting to see those epidemiologists um, and they're brilliant epidemiologists um, sort of asking questions where I think I I don't think that's that relevant to like it's yes you can get that data or yes you can find that correlation but I don't know how it's actually going to help humans you know so being a clinician it does make you 
really focus on relevant things. So, you know, for example, what are, what you believe is relevant, what you see in front of you. So my patients, um, we've got some incredible drugs, you know, to treat a range of immune diseases, but we still are using prednisolone. And prednisolone, we're using, you know, a lot of it. And people are dying of prednisolone complications. And I always think what an amazing drug prednisolone is. And we're still using it because it is incredible and yet it's causing problems. So the whole focus of the research at the lab I've been at and even my PhD was about like what other glucocorticoid induced molecules that cause the good stuff without the bad stuff. And so it has formed a kind of sustained, um, it's led to a very sustained research focus and even in the clinical research questions I ask about the cohort of rheumatoid patients I look after is what are the things that if we answered this question would help them so it does do that I also think when you do a ward round people will say something to you and you think hold on a minute why that doesn't make sense to me and you kind of go back to these basic principles so you do not assume things and you don't take anything for granted and you don't accept protocols and you don't accept algorithms and it's because you've been taught to question. So the science informs that. It's a way of thinking. Mm-hmm. And I think as a, as a clinician scientist, I think my way of thinking is very different to how it would be as a clinician. Yeah. And I think as a, as a scientist who's a clinician, the research questions I come up with, I hope, would that I wouldn't come up with them unless I thought they could help yeah. the patients in front of me so it sort of keeps you focused as an academic especially someone um, at your level of academia you make a lot of decisions that impact a lot of people and their lives and whatnot and how they learn and everything how do you evaluate the impact of the decisions that you make on teaching or yeah yeah, yeah. look well, I, I think guess all the decisions that you make for yeah, the Monash course Monash course look obviously I don't make them by myself and, yeah. and I think one of the most important things is that you know we we have established a curriculum committee and you know it's got nearly 40 people on it and each one of those people is representing a different discipline in medicine um, like surgery medicine women's health children every one of them and each one of those people has a reference group of people in all the hospitals where mm-hmm. all the students are and so I would say the, the last thing I ever wish to do and I've avoided doing is myself making any decisions about the curriculum. What I think is that we need to involve all of those people who are out there in the world clinically active to say what is it we need to bring into our course. One of the things, apart from trying to get good curriculum governance, which is a hard process and it, it's still in evolution, I think that it's very important to have you know, people who are clinically active. I'm also very keen to bring our young graduates in. Um, and, you know, now we've been involving our recent graduates in our exams. Um, I also believe that student involvement in curriculum is really important. And, you know, we're starting to get groups where we've got student representation in each of the theme uh, groups where curriculum is being formed. We've had some student-led curriculum development. So, for example, family violence and sexual violence, the students have been involved in developing curriculum, which we'd like to deploy. I think students are on the um, committees to look at the scholarly intensive project of the MD and how that will work out. 
but I love having students involved and we recently did a project where we asked students to prepare some scripts about bullying, harassment and, and, mm-hmm. and things yeah. in that so on and we're trying to make a bit of a film that's involving the students about that to use in teaching the students. So I really do think that involving students more in curriculum development and, and young graduates um, as well as having people who've been around a while. So I think that's how you try and keep it relevant and how you try and keep it uh, but it's hard because there are so many things you need to teach. Yeah. Um, and the problem is you don't have enough time. Never. Do you? <laughs> you know what, how it feels. You're, you're the recipient of this horror, <laughs> aren't you? Too, too much information. In terms of academia and medicine, which one do you think you'll let go of last and why? Oh, gee, these are good questions. These are very thoughtful, insightful <laughs> questions, I have to say. I just don't think I will let go of one or the other. Um, I think what's happened is it's like uh, a bit like I've talked to a lot. People often talk about work and life balance. You know, they ask this question, you know, work and life. And we I, talk about that. You too. talk about <laughs> a lot, right? And I've always said if you find the things that you are passionate about, it's it informs your work and it informs your 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 outside of work activity it all becomes one thing i can't really explain it like i don't feel tired it's a a continuum so i often find people say look you've got to work like a dog over here and then you do yoga there but i don't find that what i find is that i might be at home on the weekend and i might be you know reading something and in the middle of it i'll think oh that's a great idea like for that experiment or that's a great idea for that right and i immediately go and i start doing a a document about it right and i'm working but i don't even notice it and it doesn't feel hard it's not like oh damn it you know and even if i've got to prepare some teaching especially i don't feel i never feel like oh i've got to prepare some teaching on the weekend i think right what's my idea for this teaching right it's very stimulating it's Mm -hmm. almost like leisure so it becomes, it's enjoyable. So I think what happens is, it's not like you think, oh, I'm so overburdened, I've got to let go of everything. What happens is you have a strand of something, which might be about, I don't know, an example I might use is empowerment. So let's say it's about how do we make patients more empowered? How do we make students more empowered? How do we, you know, and it all becomes one thing. So I wouldn't, I've got a feeling that I'll probably just keep them all but I'll just do a bit of everything. Yeah. Uh, like, so I think I'll, you know, do a bit of clinical, but I'll just do less of everything. Yeah. But I, at this moment, think, I don't, I don't think of myself at 65, I'll retire. I think I'll just keep doing, like, whatever is energising, that whatever causes me not to pay out on other people, yeah. whatever causes me to feel energised and to energise others, I'll just keep doing it. And, and I won't work it. I won't be like, right, on this date, I'm retiring. <laughs> So uh, on that note, what do you think of your work-life balance? And uh, the second part of that question, what interests do you have outside of medicine and academia and Mm. how do you fit them in? Mm. Well, not as many as you guys have. I mean, you have – I find the interests and talents of medical students to be astounding. And the fact is it's not just a hobby often. It's a thing they do exceedingly well. I mean, medical students are nowadays, I think, um, amazing people. I mean, the way – not only like you often do leadership development outside of you know what your life often you play music or an instrument you have other diverse passions I can't even name them so it's going to be embarrassing saying my tiny things but um, 
the work-life balance look I used to struggle with this I think when I was probably when I was an intern a young doctor and a resident and a registrar I never noticed it because I was so excited about the trajectory and I felt there were days when I felt very depressed because I thought oh I've stuffed something up or I'm not good at this or oh gosh I made a mistake or you know those days and but most of the time I thought oh I'm getting somewhere you know I'm moving somewhere and in the middle part of the career I often found myself I felt as if I'm doing too much work um, and I felt a bit overloaded but I think the reason was that I wasn't really doing the things that were energizing me I was sort of accepting some of the other I was sort of accepting things as I better do that rather than moving towards the things that were truly energizing me and as soon as I started to do that like sort of go no I'm not doing that I'm not doing that one even though it sounds like it sounds like a great honor like there are a lot of things where people say would you do this and I would think what a great honor but how boring I don't want to do it you know and I think you know what it's a what an honor in the old days when I was younger I used to go oh you've chosen me what an honor oh that'll look good on my CV I'll do it right big mistake because you know you do it you go this is the most tedious thing and then you hate it yeah and then you go I hate the work whereas if you choose the things where you go I'm gonna love that I'm gonna love that then you don't notice the difference between work and leisure right that you can't tell the difference so you don't you know sometimes I'll be here on a Friday night till eight o'clock and I don't feel sorry for myself because I'm doing something that I love like I'm sitting there doing fine-tuning something for back to base or I'm fine-tuning a quiz for uh, you know the digilab or I'm fine-tuning a, a paper about something interesting and I'm, I'm, I'm excited by it and so I've started to pay much more attention than I used to to the things that and this is something also you learn by reading and looking at people around you who are you look at people around you who look like they're not tired they're not worn out they love what they do and you've got to look at those people and work out how they did it. And you look at people who go, well, I've got all these really important jobs, but I feel really martyred, I'm really stressed, and it's hard. Yeah. Like when people say, oh, yeah, I've got all this stuff, it's hard, then those people watch out because they must have taken something on that was not authentically connected to what they wanted to do. They took it on for the wrong reason. You know. So you have to always ask yourself, why am I doing this? Am I doing it because... I want to go home and tell my mum I got this job. Wow, look at me, aren't I fantastic? In the old days, if I'm honest, I used to go home to my mum and say, oh, I got a high distinction. Oh, I've been selected for this. You know, I remember when I got my, when I started my PhD, I said, oh, they've chosen me for my PhD. You know, I've been chosen. Little did I know they were dying to have medical students as PhDs, you know. So I used to kind of want to go and tell others about my success, whereas now I don't think about that. I just think what kind of really gets me energized and that I've noticed has changed a lot of things so now I'm not as tired there are days when I feel a bit sorry for myself obviously like all humans I think oh please leave me alone I've got too much on but then I think Michelle what have you done because if you're feeling that way a couple of these things you did not want to do them really yeah do you know so it's a little bit about that whole pay attention to what pay attention to what really makes you feel excited and that will always lead you the right way i think that's fantastic advice well that probably ties into 
really well with the last question, which was what advice would you want to give uh, interns? But that's fantastic. Is there anything else you'd like to add? Well, I think I gave a, a short interview for AMSA, um, and I think that advice still stands for me, which is I really worry about the young doctors. You know, obviously the mental health issues is something you yeah. worry about. I have seen young lawyers and young anybody's go through this. I, I feel like young professionals of any breed, not just doctors. I think it'd be important not to just think it's only doctors that are going through this, young doctors, because I think a lot of young people are going through this mental health stress. Um, but I do feel that I would say that I think it's a lot easier when you get older to be vulnerable and say the honest stuff, you know, like, oh, I don't know that. Mm -hmm. Maybe I'm no good at that. Maybe I'm a fraud. You know, it's easy for me to say because I've had a career. Right, but when you're a young doctor, it's very hard because you're still trying to prove yourself. You're yeah. at that point of trying to prove yourself. So it's very hard to put up your hand and say, I'm not coping. Um, what a lot of, I think, young doctors and young medical students do is they go to a lot of mental health forums and try and help other people with mental health issues. But it's very rare to find somebody who's brave enough to put up their hand and say, I'm actually vulnerable. Yeah. This is too hard for me. And we in the medical profession are not very good at allowing each other to do that. We're getting better at it, I think. Um, and I honestly think I can do that now till the cows come home, but I don't think I could have done it when I was a young intern. I was too busy trying to show that I had this covered, that I, you yeah. could trust me, you know. But I think looking at it now, I just wish I had had more courage and I, I didn't have the courage, so how can I really give this advice to you? But. I wish I had had the courage to be more vulnerable and to say I'm scared and you know there were a lot of times in clinical situations I was so terrified and I didn't have the courage to just say I'm out of my depth here you know to, to my supervisors or to and they were lovely people it wasn't that they weren't approachable but I wanted them to think I was great you know that I had that I had mastery and I think as young doctors, and I said this, you know, young medical students, we really value mastery and we don't allow enough room for the errors that of course we're going to make. And so then we punish ourselves, you know, when we, most of the young doctor shame and, and, and suicide and all the rest of it has often been about, um, you know, worrying they're not good enough for certain training programs or yeah. worrying that uh, they have made an error or something. So I think if I said, I'm not sure I could have done it when I was a young person, but I, I tr even now I still have to try not to be too hard on myself and, you know, to try to sort of allow yourself to be human. Um, it's just hard to do, though, at the stage of life you're at. So I think a lot of it is about... I think you can go to a lot of yoga classes and a lot of mindfulness classes and you can have a thousand interests. Like, I mean, I do, you know, French and I like poetry and I like reading and I run and I like all those things. But it's not those things that are protecting me from... That's not the things that are protecting me. Um, have, doing those things helps me keep a sense of scale, for sure, and see past everything. Having old friends who've known you since you were a kid helps a lot, you know, because they don't know your job and they don't know what you do. And so they know you. And yeah. so you can be yourself. And that helps a lot. And all of those things help, like being in the outdoors, being in nature, having a sense of scale. But the thing that helps more than anything else, I think, is 
being able to honestly acknowledge your shortcomings and to be able to be brave enough to just share them with colleagues and that is not something I necessarily could do myself so I'm cautious about saying to you now because it's all very well for me you know all very well for me Um, and I just don't think old people like me have the right actually to tell you guys how to live because as my daughter told me last night I've got no idea how hard it is for young people these days (laughs) and I don't I don't so you have to find your way I think you have to find your way and and I I reckon you will because I think you're adaptable smart tough incredible people and I think you will find your way and I trust you and I don't think you should listen to me in fact (laughs) having said all that (laughs) wonderful we really appreciate your time today thank you so much thank you for having me on the show that's it for this episode thank you so much for listening please make sure to complete the survey for this episode we want to make sure the episodes are as useful as possible and the surveys help us to monitor whether they're making an impact on our fellow peers it only takes 30 seconds and it helps more than you can imagine The link can be found on our Facebook and our blog. All right, guys, see you next week.